Welcome, everybody, into the Valley. I am Ethan, joined always by my partner in crime, Stephen Gardner. We are coming at you after a, a short break full of basketball to talk about. As the Suns now sit, as we are talking on this Monday afternoon, with a 3-1 series lead, which is really good after you remember our conversation after game one. So, Stephen, I know we've got a lot to talk about. I'll kind of keep it open to where we can really jump wherever we want to. But just general vibe check going into tomorrow as we sit three and one. How are you feeling? I think it's impossible to feel anything but great in response to at least the outcomes that we've been getting Mm -hmm. from the Suns, you know, coming out victorious and getting greedy on a road trip that was definitely tough because the Clippers are no pushover team, whether they have their superstars or not, and especially at home. So to see them go on the road, not just get one, which was the overarching goal, but get greedy and get two to come back home with the commanding 3-1 lead, can't find much to complain about in terms of the results they're getting, that's for sure. Yeah, I also think, uh, and I want to talk about this, obviously, it's what the pod's for. I think a lot of questions have been answered that we asked in game one. A lot of those game one questions, I think we've either seen how Monty wants to answer them, how maybe the players themselves have answered them. But I think with every game, we're getting a better picture of what the Suns want to look like in this new era. And hopefully that can continue. Um, So again, before we jump into it, again, this is Into the Valley, part of Helio Hoops Network, part of Fans First, and thank them for giving us this opportunity and giving us this platform. And now let's talk ball. The the reason, Stephen, that you put up with me. Talk some <laughs> Phoenix Suns hoops. Game three and game four, different stories. For those who maybe haven't caught the score somehow, uh, game three, the Suns win 129-124. Uh, it's almost getting redundant to say a Devin Booker masterclass with what he is doing. Uh, and then following that up, Saturday, 112-100 at the most, I guess, depending on who you are, one of the most inconvenient times for a game. The fact that they were playing that game in L.A. for game four before they then used it for the Lakers, I think game three or something stupid like that. I don't know. That's what happens when you're not playing the Lakers. You don't get the prime times. You get you get stuck with whatever they throw at you. I mean, can we also complain about a game on NBA TV at like 11 p.m.? I don't Come know. On, I'm I'm an old grumpy man, but that is <laughs> the Suns are getting done dirty on the schedules. I'm serious yeah. on that one. That if it, sucks. If, if, if if the Suns are getting done dirty, the Clippers got way more to complain about being little <laughs> brother. I man. I know. If I were a Clipper fan who probably already hears so much crap from Lakers fan, mm-hmm. like that's that was pretty brutal. But yeah, that's we why they need their own stadium, which is in the works. I, I was gonna say with Balmer money, he he better mm-hmm. get something going in no time. But, in the um, works and well overdue. <laughs> yes, it, that still blows my mind. Uh let's talk, let's talk game three. Last talked after game two. Let's pick it up game three. Again, Suns win 129-124 behind Devin Booker's 45 points. That I feel like we could probably have an entire episode just talking about Devin Booker. Uh, we'll try to we'll try to keep it tame, but Devin Booker looked like a one A caused by Kevin Durant being like a one A plus essentially. Booker was able to have a phenomenal night while he, Monty, and others continued to give him his flowers, but attribute it to what Kevin Durant causes when he's on the court. I, I thought that was 
I mean, that's what we talked about pre-playoffs, right? Like one of them will get going. You cannot give either of those guys the opportunity to do that to you. And they, they made a decision, right? They said, we're going to help on Kevin Durant. And then the Clippers paid the price of that and have continued to since game three. Were you surprised in this Kawhi-less world that the Clippers, the Clippers after game two decided to continue that approach when it comes to how do we maintain Durant and Booker? I won't say I'm surprised because I think any opposing coach would try to take away the Kevin Durant portion of the meal from the clip from the Suns and kind of just bet on themselves being able to contain the rest. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't say I'm surprised by it. Um, but I, what I will say is I'm surprised that they didn't adjust as in terms of giving Booker more attention after he got hot. It seemed like uh, T. Lou's bet consistently on just taking Durant away as much as possible and just living with the results um, rather than just going with taking away the high hand at any given stretch of the game. So they've been consistent in that. Yeah. And I mean, this game was close and I don't want to take anything away from the Clippers, but Powell and Westbrook combined for 72 points Mm -hmm. in order for that to happen. And I think in game four, you kind of see what happens when even one of those two pieces isn't able to hold up their end of the bargain. But in terms of the Suns offense, we'll just start there in game three before we kind of go player by player. What did you like about the Suns offense in game three as it seem seems like not perfect seems like they're getting into more of a rhythm as the series has gone on well what i like most about the offense particularly in game three was the fact that devin booker was able to get the type of shot quality and opportunities at the basket that he was that he was afforded of course it came as somewhat of a byproduct of durant's uh just general gravity on the basketball court but it also came from a lot of uh appropriate discernment in terms of deciding how to attack the defense when to attack the defense and where to attack the defense in terms of looking at weak points to pretty much um exploit with his uh via his drives uh being Devin Booker and I got stats for his drives to get into later on after we get done recapping the last two games but the way his drives his drives have been popping in these playoffs like I mentioned in our last podcast, and it just grew tenfold over the last two games. But he's literally been the best driver of the basketball in these playoffs. And for a team that has their issues in terms of the shot profile being a little bit too mid-range centric mm-hmm. because of the um, obviously the strengths and just the, the next level uh, efficiencies that their four best players have from that range of the court, to have a player that's able to still knock down said shot at a high clip but also be able to blend in that rim pressure and to be that consistent of a threat and that efficient from whether it's a shot that comes from his drive or actual layup in the restricted area that comes from it. It's, it's, it's what this team has really needed, especially in the absence of Cameron Payne, who is outside of Devin Booker will be their biggest rim pressure guy. And then also with Deandre Aiden operating more from the mid range than from the low block. So seeing his drives pop to this extent has been a large part of why they're, um, the series has been tilted on its head the way it has been in favor of the Suns. Yeah, and I think it's such basic basketball. When you look at players who have thrived in the mid-range over their career, and I don't know, the first name that popped in my head, just in terms of like more recent still playing, you think of like a DeMar DeRozan type, right? You think of Book, KD, Chris, obviously. Younger years, Chris could get to the rim. Mm-hmm. 
And the ability to do that is what gets the defense to allow you to have that mid-range, right? And that's the thing with Book. At times during his career, I would say, maybe oversimplifying, it was like his goal was to get to the mid-range. And in reality, I think the goal is get to the rim. The backup plan or the safety valve is the mid-range. And you thrive because the space is created by the threat you are at the rim. Booker attacking like some sort of monster is giving him some of the best mid-range looks he's ever seen because they cannot play tight. They can't step up as much. He is making life miserable, just plain and simple, miserable, and is getting some of the best shots he's ever seen. And I do, I do want to say Kevin Durant's a part of that, but I don't want that to take away from what book is doing in his own decision-making. Absolutely. It's not like, there's two dudes in a corner with Kevin Durant because he's Kevin Durant and Book's just abusing something. Like, no, he's forcing the issue. Uh, and Monty has given him love multiple times in the practice interview sessions, post game as well. He is setting the tone in a way that I don't think we have seen. And I love it. And I am here for it. And part of me thinks he's able to do that because he has a support system around him that he's never had before. Um, when you can drive knowing that if option A and B aren't there, option C is a kick out to Kevin Durant. Like that's an absurd amount of confidence, <laughs> right? Going into anything. And so, yeah, book book was phenomenal. I, I don't want to take away from talented people performing. Well, I felt like Powell and Westbrook both were having absurdly good nights with good defense played against them. Would you, would you agree with that? 1000% absolutely. Like I just I think that was more of an outlier than what Booker was doing because I felt Booker's was within the flow with good opportunities. Give Powell as credit and and Russ. I mean, I love Russ, so I try to not overhype, but like both of them had it going in game 3. Yep. And it was a lot of fun to watch. They gave as much of a punch as they possibly could without Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. And they took that game as far as they possibly could before eventually being outmanned by the star power of the Suns. And that was kind of game three ended and I immediately was like, all right, Suns in five. Because to me, I saw the Clippers, I think, at close to their best. Lou threw in a couple wrinkles offensively that gave some troubles. Suns adjusted reasonably. The Suns offense was good. Not like not everyone was just like absurdly out of their mind, right? Like got to the free throw line. Well, set the pace really well, but the Clippers offensively, I think did everything they possibly could do. And they scored 124 points. The Suns versus the current iteration of the Clippers are going to score 125. You know what I mean? Like that's just, Mm -hmm. that's how I took that. I just felt like they, they gave it their all credit Russ for game four as well. Like, I love I love that Russ is doing this while losing. You know what I mean? Like, good for him, but I'm so glad we're taking care of business. Uh, <laughs> game game three, we also saw Torrey Craig continue to shoot the ball well, three of four from three, kind of slamming the door on the whole conversation. A big part of that being Monty giving Josh more minutes off the bench that is helping, I think, kind of make everyone happy. Like, everyone mm-hmm. is able to kind of say, I told you so. Because either you were pro Tory Craig starting and you look great, or you were pro Josh just needs more opportunities and he's doing great. So everyone's happy. I love that. 
And then we get to, I'm sorry to do this to you. We get to the one hot topic. And I think this can be game three related, game four related. It's going to be DeAndre Ayton. So I'm going to, we're going to put a pin in this one. And I'm going to let you take this one after we recap game four. Does that work with you? Sounds great to me. All right. Let's talk game four. What do you like out of game four? A much more comfortable game, I would say. Suns end up winning by 12. Uh, Durant offensively, a little bit better, continuing to pick it up. I think he finished with 30 or 31. But not a game where I felt too concerned, to be quite honest with you. What were kind of your big takeaways from game four? Well, it's somewhat like game three. And uh, game four, we saw the Suns win that that sprint to the first time out that I mentioned in our last podcast. So seeing them do that on the road back-to-back games was um, impressive. But they do still need to clean up their starts because they're still losing a majority of the first quarters in these playoffs. If, if, um, if my memory serves me correct, they've lost every first quarter. And so to even see them – to win that sprint to the first time out, that's a step in the right direction, but that's still not enough. That shows that you are dictated initially, but then you take your foot off the gas at least the slightest bit, and that allows for a team to then dictate terms towards you in the opening frame. And I think for as great, and we're going to – another stat that I have to get into later on, but for as great as this team is from the second quarter to the fourth quarter in these playoffs – if they can just mitigate and even just neutralize their starts, if they're going to just be a team that comes late to the party, some teams are like that. That's okay. But if you're just not six, seven, eight points behind the eight ball and you're just like net neutral, that's going to hit way different when you you hear the numbers that they're putting up from second quarters to fourth quarters. So I think if they can just mitigate that, especially in the game five in front of the home crowd, that's going to be a big telltale sign in terms of this team's progress together. Because I think in terms of the grand scheme of things, there's really only a handful of things that are um, worrisome, if you will. And -hmm. I think their starts are going to be one of those things. So if they can just start turning the corner in that respect, that's going to change the landscape of everything for them. Yeah, I did a quick quick fact check, and I might have overlooked something. I think they've lost three of them and tied one of them. I think game three was 27-27 at the end of one. Correct. But even that one, I think they were down a bit and then clawed back to tie it Correct. right at the end. They had to fight back. So yep. it it's just weird. And I'm hoping you're right. And I know historically there are teams that are like that. But I just, for the sake of me as a watcher, boy, would it be nice if in game five, they just came out on like a 12-0 run and then just played even from there on. Like keep an eight-point lead or so going into the second. There, I mean, it's over at that point. Uh, I'm excited to hear what you've kind of got prepped there. Anything else about game four? I didn't, other than on the other side of the team, like I thought Russ played another phenomenal game and is continuing to get a lot of love, which I love to see. Uh, Book had a good game, didn't shoot the ball quite as well, sub 50%, which for him is becoming less normal, which is stinking amazing. Um, And... Other than that, there wasn't a lot of foul trouble. They didn't shoot exceptionally well from three. Everyone shot pretty much what was expected, but defensively, they held the Clippers to 100 points. Did you see anything new on the defensive side? Did you just see the Clippers missing shots? What was it that maybe swung it so differently? Obviously, we just talked about them putting up crazy Powell-Westbrook numbers in three. Things definitely cooled off in four. Do you think that was more us or them? 
I think that was more the Suns. And I think it was because the activity was more sustained, in a sense, on the defensive side of the ball. And, with, again, as I've been preaching since they got Kevin Durant, the offense is going to take the forefront in terms of attention. But where they're going to really nail things is going to be on the defensive side because, naturally, if they're compiling an elite level of stops on elite efficiencies on defensive numbers, the offense is going to take care of itself because they're going to be playing with so much pace and so much um, tempo into their half-court offense that if the defense isn't set, there's just going to be so many different matchups and things like that that they can take advantage of. But, I mean, outside of the defense, which I do think was uh, one of the bigger things to look at, especially with DeAndre Aiden being a little bit more active at the level of the screen and pick and roll defense, which is something that's going to be exceptionally just taking the chief precedent over most things defensively because looking at guards that are going to be in the way, like Jamal Murray, potentially John Morant, even a guard like D'Angelo Russell, you can't play drop against him because he can pull up and knock down threes with the best of them. So him being aggressive in pick and roll is going to be important. Outside of that, I think that game four was one of the most Chris Paul games that you could get in terms of looking at where this team is now because customarily – Chris has been ridiculed by Suns pundits, whether it be fans, uh, journalists, uh, TV analysts, whatever. They've always said, Chris, you got to be more aggressive. And if you're a Chris Paul fan, you've been hearing that Chris needs to be more aggressive since he was in college. Like, Steven, do I do I am I talking to a Chris Paul fan right now? Just you to, you you are. Uh, I, will, I, will, yeah, I, I know that one. Gladly admit it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so he's always been asked to put his foot on the gas more as a scorer because he's such a capable guy, and because his ability to score then sets up even cleaner passing lanes for him to play make through. And I think with the iteration of the Suns with Kevin Durant in the mix, now he's being implored and enabled more to play that playmaker table setter, facilitator, floor general role for three quarters if he chooses to do so and just take a couple of the catch and shoot opportunities that come his way. And then in the fourth quarter, now he's got a full tank of gas rather than having a half a tank of gas or a fourth a tank of gas in some instances. And he can, while teams are trying to take away all of the damage that Kevin Durant and Devin Booker have put on them and putting two to the ball and giving them extra attention, you kind of forget that there's this um, this point guard guy that's not just an elite playmaker, an all-time playmaker, but one of the better uh, playoff performers, especially in clutch moments. And I think that was the template and the example that we saw in game four. Kevin Durant and Devin Booker are doing their thing in terms of scoring and dictating things over the course of the first three quarters. And then we start the fourth quarter, and all of a sudden Chris Paul is knocking down threes off of getting unders and pick and roll, manipulating switches to get to the Clippers five mans and attacking them in isolation, getting to the top foot, getting to the basket, knocking down mid-range shots, and just being Chris Paul being a point guard and having that spade in your back pocket. And that's after the pyrotechnic scoring opportunities that Devin Booker and Kevin Durant can compile over the course of 36 minutes. Like that, <laughs> that's such an ultimate trump card to have in your yeah. back pocket. And then that's not, even, we haven't even said like they didn't need it in game four because Chris did the damage himself, but we haven't even talked about how, if he's doing that all of a sudden, in addition to what Kevin Durant and Devin Booker might do. That type of blend is something that most teams really can't replicate or even neutralize. I was going to say that definitely the replicate point, but I think the neutralize point is huge. Like you just, Mm -hmm. just think of successful playoff teams and how they've closed in the past. There's usually two guys that you have to try to scheme for. Like, I mean, I feel like we even saw, a, a light version of this 
with the Bucks at times when fully healthy. Correct. Giannis is Giannis. What are you going to do? And you have Chris Middleton, who the Sun saw firsthand, can scorch you as a three-way scorer. And you're like, oh, crap, we, we still have Drew Holiday over there, who is so much better than people think. That, I think, oh, how spicy do I want to get? I think the Suns three is better than those three offensively. If you bring defense into the other side, I think it gets a whole lot tougher to differentiate because of some old people we might have. Uh, But (laughs) offensively, the fourth quarter version of the Suns that we have seen, I do not know what a team is going to do. I look forward to teams throwing out like a random 1-3-1 and just saying like, maybe if we throw enough crap at the wall, something sticks, right? Like, I have no idea what is going to continue to be thrown at this closing group because I, I have no ideas of, of what you do. And it's interesting, and I wanted to, to bring this up as well. One more trend that we've seen going from game one all the way to game four is Monty rotationally has continued to downsize. I think game four gives us, a my guess, the most realistic picture of what the Suns are going to look like moving forward. Um, for those that maybe weren't able to catch it or kind of just don't remember what some of those weird rotations looked like, out of the the bench guys that got in, the reserves, Akogi ended up playing 25 minutes. The next closest was Damian Lee with 14, Biz at 12, Landry at 5. So we're down to nine. And what I would, I think it's fair to say, Monty kind of has a core of six. I think it's the four plus Josh and Tori. And then the rest are kind of just breathers. And I don't mean that in a belittling way, but I don't think any of those guys are coming in as the focal point of some change. Like, I don't think you put Biz in for some strategic change. I think it's give DA a breather. Maybe if the rebounding's not where it's at or more than likely foul trouble as we're going to see throughout the playoffs. It is more of a utility decision than a game decision. I think putting Josh in is a game decision. I think there are things where this sub allows us to fundamentally change our our approach whether it's defense, how we're going to attack, whatever. But really it's six guys and then the rest. Those guys, not only did they just combine for three makes in game four, they only attempted, uh, I think it was nine shots, if my math is right. So you're not getting much offensive production in terms of scoring from those guys. Do you do you think that needs to change? Or do you think this is something that can be replicated with the biggest if in the world, if the Suns can stay healthy? I do think it's something that they can replicate. And I also anticipate them being more healthy down the line with Cameron Payne still having yet to touch the floor for have this team heard, in the playoffs. Have we updates there? No, nah, unfortunately, we still haven't, which is somewhat... Come on, Mr. It's, Mr. It's, interview <laughs> press man. I need you to get me the info. It's, it's somewhat concerning because it keep, we keep hearing that he's progressing but still not quite no. there yet, which is not... that's that 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 brings no solace. Cause it's been a while since Cam, you know, has actually been on the court for this team, and I think some people underestimated or undervalued what he brings and what he yes. can mean to this team. Even again, like I keep mentioning, even if his numbers aren't the prettiest, that pace that he plays with, in contrast to Chris Paul, like.
what you want from your starting point guard and your backup point guard is a contrast because it gives you two different looks. I think the best, the best, um, the best other example of that would be looking at the Memphis Grizzlies. You look at the pace that John Morant plays at, and then you look at the pace that Tyus Jones plays at. There are they're night and day. Tyus Jones is a lot more methodical. He's a lot more of a think it through guy and playing at a certain speed. And obviously, John Morant is maybe the highest pace player, especially at the guard position outside of De'Aaron Fox. Um, so kind of just looking at that contrast is a weapon for the Suns and seeing how Cam can also double and playing off the ball so that when he's in staggered in the lineup with Kevin Durant or Devin Booker, he can initiate, but he can also start a play in the corner and can be a threat in the catch and shoot game and shooting off of movement, slight movement and things like that. So I think it's sustainable for this team. It'll only get better once he gets into the mix. I say, I think that is a great call out because I, I do think when Cam shows up, minutes won't get taken from other bench guys to go to him I think they will come from the five guys that are playing an insane amount right now I think that will be kind of granted to them without looking too far in in the future assuming things going into game fives in various places it sure looks like the Suns are going to run up against the Nuggets and I'm telling you campaign and pace are that will be such a good weapon against the Nuggets and I think you can see that from the Timberwolves and how they're trying to utilize Anthony Edwards, who even with poor shooting nights, still putting constant pressure on the rim. I mean, Jokic looked gassed to begin the third. Like, the dude so dropped 40-something in OT. Like, I get it. <laughs> with but, ease. <laughs> right, but like, that's, that's my thing where I think that's going to be a big weapon. I really do. Like, I... I don't think campaign's the deciding factor in the series by any means, but I think the ability to have that pace in a way we don't right now is going to be really, really big. Um, so yeah, I'm hoping hoping he gets whatever it is figured out uh, as as we move forward. And again, we got Game Five tomorrow night back on a normal time on a normal channel. No offense, NBA TV, hmm. but we got two games of stuff to discuss, and I and I had a couple big picture things I wanted to bring to you here. And the big one, which hopefully anyone who came here to get angry in the first 25, they've left by now. Let's talk about the tallest elephant in the room. And that is DeAndre Ayton. I think, and we've mentioned this before, if there's enough success going on around him and the attention's not on him as much, it's good for the general discourse of Suns fans. A lot of people stay a little quieter, and I think that's good. Now, today in the interviews, uh, I'm guessing you saw this. He got asked about his lack of motor and how he responded. Did you happen to see the uh, the full quota response there? No, I actually, because it, of work-related let me, <laughs> things, I did not get a chance. Let to. me share, and I'm going to give our man uh, Gerald at PHNX some credit. He was the tweet in the video that I saw. DeAndre Ayton on people questioning his motor. And this is kind of his quote pieced together. Quote, man, I don't know what that is. Motor? Come on. I play both ends of the floor. My name is Dominaton. I anchor the suns on both ends of the floor. Motor man? Really? Nope. I run on Tesla battery. Now let's ignore the corniness of (laughs) Dominaton and running on a Tesla battery. And just... Let's start with the question first from your perspective. As a guy who watches the game, I know better than I do because I know my fan goggles can take over more than I'd like them to. Uh, 
how are you feeling about DeAndre Ayton through these first four games? So I personally feel like he's left more to be desired in terms of his activity levels. Mm-hmm. However, I don't think that his motor can necessarily be questioned because you can't, you can never question his, um, and my, and this is in my opinion, again, I know this is a contrast from many, uh, based off the discourse that we see on a daily basis around his name. I feel like his, his motor, especially of late can't be questioned. I think sometimes his IQ and his, uh, general awareness, and that's a stark kind that's, there's a difference between Amen. is he playing hard and is he aware? Yes. Because, Absolutely. I don't think you can question whether he's playing hard. I think he understands what's at what's at stake here, being in the playoffs and how fickle things can be from a minute to minute basis. Um, so I won't, I will, I won't question his um, intent behind any of the activity and whatnot from him. I will question some of his decision making though, um, and some of the things being why is it that sometimes he's not at the level of the screen? Is that a scheme thing from Monty, or is that just Aiden? sometimes losing touch with the scheme over the course of a game, over the flow of a game, uh, with the emotions and everything like that, and also the weapons that the Clippers have at their disposal on offense. Um, and then also, like we mentioned in the last pod, a handful of the straight-line drives that the Suns have been giving up to the Clippers. Of course, they have slippery shooters that can get you um, get you enticed by their pump fakes and get you out of your stance even just the slightest bit to then attack you and drive past you. That's where your rim protection has to come in. And the biggest value outside of obviously being able to guard in space, switch, and play multiple schemes defensively is DeAndre Ayton's rim protection. And for you to not be on high alert as a rim protector at times, especially when Zubach is not a a floor spacer, so like 90% of the time on the floor, you're either near or around exactly. You're either in the restricted area or somewhere around a dunker spot, meaning that you're a step away to contest in uh, rim protection. So I have questions in terms of those things and why he's not always as aware as I feel like he can be and as he's shown that he can be over the course of his playoffs career over the last two seasons and some change now. But in terms of motor, I don't think that's – no, I don't I don't like that. And I think that's um, trollish of people to use. Not This is not an indictment against Gerald in any capacity, but I think it's trollish for people on Twitter to question his motor. Yeah, I don't and think I don't even. I don't know if Gerald asked the question. I don't know who asked the question, mm-hmm. but I agree. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. It, mm-hmm. One comment that really set me off, and I don't know if it's still out there. Someone was saying, "I just don't think he's smart." I don't think you watching him play. Your takeaway is he's not an intelligent person. He's not a smart person. I really do think it's the point oh oh five second decision making. Where it, I don't know. I always think, I think a lot in terms of soccer world because that's what I lived for so long. When you teach young kids soccer and the ball is coming to you, one of the most common things you hear is check your shoulder. And it's essentially look over your shoulder, get a good idea of what's going on around you so you know how to respond before the ball even gets there. When you get up to high school or college, You don't hear that anymore because that's not something you need to be told. That is something that is just like ingrained in your internal awareness. You know where you are and you always know where everything else is. So you don't think through what to do when it gets there. You just do it. And sometimes it seems like DeAndre is just half a step behind the awareness, whoever's next to him. Whether that is, and this one is one I've been getting 
more clued in on like where to go when a shot goes up. Like when a shot goes up from certain angles and you can go watch a Dennis Rodman highlight reel, he does not win rebounds by jumping at the perfect time over someone. The moment a shot goes up from a certain angle, he shifts his body or takes a step to the side to go where he knows it's most likely the ball's going to go. I know that's a skill, which makes me think you can get better. I see him stay planted, watch, and be like, I'm going to jump. And sometimes he doesn't even time the jump right. And that's where it's just a little, like, this this is probably so speculative it's insane. Part of that is sometimes it's maybe this is because he started playing basketball at such a late age, right? Like he was not the number one overall pick like LeBron, who's basketball genius from age three. This is whatever. Like he has a really cool and unique story to where the guy was playing soccer and and shifted. And like, that's not he doesn't have a lifetime of basketball under his belt to where everything is natural. He learned at a stage of life where some of this might not be just that immediate snap your finger and you get it. And I think we just see that sometimes where he's just a step behind. I don't think that's energy or effort or motor. I think it's awareness. And I think, I think you nailed it with that word. And as we look, you know, that's four games. I think defensively, that's where I have more issues right now than offensively. If the if the guy shoots 50% from the line and scores 10 points or whatever, he's going to get some bunnies. The Suns can still win, especially against good teams. If his rim protection drops, I am very nervous. And that's where that's where he's he adds his most value in terms of Agreed. landscape of centers in the playoffs. Like the one thing, like most centers can survive on the offensive side, whether that be a Rudy Gobert that's just the best screener in basketball that just gives the vertical spacing and offensive rebounding, or if it's a Jokic, this arguably the best player in the NBA because of our all-encompassing skill set that he has. The fine line between those two is DeAndre Aiden, where he can hit mid-range shots and he can hit those half hooks with the best of them. He has that array of soft touch finishes. He can play make off the short roll. He can take he's a dribble a, off the short he's roll. He's also a good passer. That just that exactly that like, short roll playmaking is there yeah, for him. It's, yeah. And but the thing that he brings that's most valuable to this team, that's been most valuable to the Suns on the playoff stage, is that you can't play him off the court defensively. Yep. If you want to go small ball, guess what? Mighty Williams has shown numerous times that he's sometimes to a fault. That he's more than comfortable keeping, yep. keeping DeAndre Aiden out there and dictating because he can he can guard his yard. He likes to say guard his yard. He can guard his yard in, in isolation in space with your starting point guard and not foul and contain the ball to the extent that where either somebody that's helping can help with him to get the stop or he can get the stop by himself. We saw him get stops against Kawhi Leonard in this series before he got hurt, unfortunately, and I wish him the best moving forward. But DeAndre Aiden's most value that he brings to the team, which I feel like some people are forgetting, is his defense and the versatility that he brings offensively. You mentioned his soccer background. One of the best skill sets within his defense, if you want to zoom in more, is his footwork. He can he can stay in locked up with almost anybody on the court at any given moment because of that lateral quickness, the coordination with his feet and his anticipatory skill to slide laterally as well and wall up. And of course it hasn't been there, but the people that say, the people that say that he's not smart, I, first of all, I disagree. But in addition to that, we just 
we're just gonna forget that this man anchored a team that went to the finals two seasons ago. Oh, I mean, was, based based off what I'm reading, it's like people forgot two years ago existed. No, like, and I get that that was a while ago. You want him to, you want him to, you know, you're only as good as your last game in right. some people's eyes, and that's you know that's up for a whole another debate. But the fact that he's shown that he can do it. That's at his foundation. That was his first playoff show. And if you guys forgot, like, he had all of these question marks, came out and defended Jokic as good as any other center has in the NBA, in the season that he won MVP, by the way. And that changed the entire trajectory of that series. Like, the if, if DeAndre Aiden doesn't defend Jokic to the level that he did, and let's not forget, Jokic averaged over 25 that series, so he didn't get locked down in any stretch of imagination. It's impossible. So He had to work so hard. He had to work so hard. DeAndre Aiden closed his airspace so consistently and was athletic enough to stay in front of him without fouling. Like, that's defense. Half, half a defense, part of the reason Jaron Jackson Jr., my Michigan State brethren, gets criticized is because he's a great defender, but he doesn't have the discernment to not foul. He doesn't have the discipline to not foul. DeAndre Aiden doesn't have that issue. That's a big part of defense. And I think people also underestimate the speed of the game in the NBA. You talk about these half-second decisions, these split-second decisions. When you're a center and you have a second action going on on the weak side that you have to keep an eye on, in addition to Russell Westbrook, who might reject the screen and drive at you at quicker than your own hiccup, like that's a lot to process in real time. All the while, there's all this ambiance in the crowd because it's a playoff game, so you can't hear everything as clearly as you might in a in a practice facility or something like that. Like there's a lot of factors that go into it. So I think, and I don't want to sound like I'm coming off like arrogant because I know everybody doesn't play basketball. It doesn't play basketball to a certain level, but you have to take into account the speed of the game. It's not like he's just out there. Everything's going half speed and he's just moving at molasses uh, speed. No, things are happening quickly. And like you said, split second decisions are being made. We've so we've seen that he can make them. He just has to get back to that level. And I think that he will for this team to get to where they want to be. Yeah. And again, bypassing the corniness, which I think is just kind of built in his dad personality. I love his personality. It, it is very funny, and he is great for the world to enjoy. And you you need uh, that in a in a championship contending team. You true. need that balance. Yeah. I, what I what I take away going back to your comments is: Can you imagine how annoyed you would feel if you're out there playing 40 minutes of high level, high speed physical basketball to then go to practice and be like, people seem to be questioning your effort. I. Again, I get the response, even if it might not be worded the way I would word it. Like, I get that because that just has there's that's such a tough feeling to feel like you're putting it out there and then people are just perceiving it like you're not because that's I mean, that's the whole motor thing. It's a dumb way of saying like people are saying you're not trying hard. And, and I don't think this is an effort thing. I think the stuff that we want to see improve doesn't get fixed by him trying harder. I think it's by him being a little quicker and being more aware, like fixable things. And I'm, I'm telling you, if, if it ends up being Suns nuggets, I'm, I'm going to call it. It'll be the Deandre and showing out party because his entire career, there is some weird switch in his head that when he gets paired up against Giannis Embiid, Jokic, whoever in that very rare air there is just a version of him that just seems to want to shut everyone up and i love it and we saw it in the finals run we've seen it in the regular season since i am telling you i have very high hopes and i also am gonna love after 
watching through this Nuggets T-Wolf series, there are so many moments where you see the Nuggets get excited when Gobert or Cat gets switched on to someone in the perimeter and you immediately see them be like, all right, time to go. Like we know what we're, this is what we're waiting for. They're not going to get that with DA. DA is not going to let it happen. And if they pull DA out, you've got seven foot one who claims he's 6'11", Kevin Durant waiting for you under the rim. I am excited to see that challenge. And again, not trying to bypass game five, but the way the odds look, it looks very possible to see that matchup. And I'm excited for it. I'm also excited. We talked about watching other basketball to see what's going on in the other side of the Western Conference because it is a mess and I love it. And I think, I just think we're in for a treat this playoff. Like, I think there's a lot of exciting stuff. The injuries, which absolutely man. suck. Turn and the injuries off, man, please. I, it seems like after every night of basketball, there's one more announced. Today was De'Aaron Fox, uh, which breaks my heart as a Kentucky guy. And mm-hmm. just because I, I love watching them play. It injuries suck, but it continues to add to the never ending storyline of the NBA. Uh, there is drama everywhere. If nothing, I think the Suns Clippers may be one of the more boring series because of the Kawhi thing. It was like the Kawhi injury happened and people were like, all right, let's go and throw those on NBA TV now. You know what I mean? It, it seems like even the national media has kind of got the Suns in chalk and, and I don't think they're too crazy to think that. But looking ahead to game five, do you do you expect a lot of change from the Suns or more likely maybe what are you expecting to see the Clippers do? Because they're the ones now that are kind of sitting on the hot seat at home for the Suns, by the way, in Phoenix. Like that's a really tough game for the Clippers. What do you what do you expect to see in game five? So I think over the last three games, which is a three game win streak for the Suns, I think we've seen them find ways to maneuver themselves into those exploitable matchups with the Clippers centuries. So looking specifically at Mason Plumley and Navisa Zubach. Um, whether that be via pick and roll, whether that be via manipulating switches through their three-player actions or just general pace and flow of their half-court sets and just being able to manipulate matchups in that manner or going against drop coverage. Um, the, the Suns have found a multitude of ways to find their ways to get to those spots with Kevin Durant, with Devin Booker, and then with Chris Paul late. And I think, of course, the mid-range, the capacity of mid-range shots that those three have hit on that efficiency can, can just snowball into an overwhelming feeling for a coach, an opposing coach. So I think that we might, which I thought we, we would see earlier in the series, we might see T. Lou being forced by the clip by the Sun's hand to go off, off script a little bit more and use more small ball. So if you take the centers for your team off the table for the Suns to go and attack, what do they revert to next? That's a question that we haven't really seen posed as much because the Suns have just been so dominant. And it seems like T. Lou has been extremely reluctant to go to small ball, which is a contrast to his typical um, approach and mindset for his team. I do think we see more small ball in game five. Do you, Even do you think if that'll it's be Covington or Morris at the five. So, and that's the question. So the first time we saw their small ball, it was Kawhi. And it was right. a direct response to the barrage of mid-range shots from the Suns. I don't know if it'll be Morris, 
But I could see it because they like his creation, especially without Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. They'll need his creation in those small ball lineups mm-hmm. on the other side with their five-hour offense. But I do think we'll see more Robert Covington than we have seen. Again, I've been saying that over the course of the series because I really right. thought he would be someone that he would use more because of the – you know the real reluctant to get him back in whatever mm-hmm. the norm was. And I don't mm-hmm. know if that was coming off of – I don't, I don't know how much injury talk there was. I know he got a hit with a DNP or two towards the end, but it, it seems like Batum has a whole lot of trust from T. Lou to figure it out, and he's been pretty non-existent. Yeah, he's been scoreless in two games. I mean, yeah, I, It's hard for me to think that that continues. If I'm, if I'm looking at the Clippers and saying who's been the most effective, you've got Powell, Westbrook, and Mann. Yep. So then you've got to piece something around at least two of those at all times. And I just don't know what that looks like for them. And that's the other name. So I mentioned Covington specifically with their small ball lineups, um, just because he's usually able to go against a guy like Kevin Durant. He's not the best isolation defender, but in terms of help defense, especially if you're sending double teams, he's the perfect type of guy you want as a low man to command the second side of a defense that's rotating. But outside of Robert Covington, I think Terrence Mann has been a factor for the Clippers this series. Mm-hmm. It's gonna go under. Uh, it's gonna be under talked, underspoken on just because of the scoring from Russell Westbrook and just the general motor that that dude has. My God, my God. And then you also mentioned Norman Powell and his scoring pyrotechnics. He's been, in terms of top, tough shot making, he's been Insane. very good this series. Very yeah. good. Um, but Terrence, man, my God, the defense he's been playing, I, dude. He's, he's annoying, like, which he's is a compliment. very, very annoying, which is the best compliment to have if defense is the best thing that you're bringing to the table. He is such a nuisance, man. And he does it with great discipline. He doesn't foul yeah. uh, to where he's putting himself in a position where he can't be a factor for his team. And then he comes down court on the other side, and he just knocks down the shots that he's conceded. He's going to be helped off of. He knows it. He's either going to knock down that shot or he's going to do a good job driving the clothes out yeah. to get to the next play, whether that be for himself or to kick it to an open shooter or something like that. And he's also a willing screener that can play make on a short roll which again is a factor when they decide to go with their small ball lineups and they go five out offense. So I think we could potentially see T, uh, T man potentially start um, in some, in terms of desperation, just going with what sticks for Ty Lue. Yeah. I was curious who, do you remember who started for them last game? I'm trying to pull that up. Yeah, it was, um, it was Norman Powell, Russell Westbrook, Eric Gordon, um, Gordon, Visa Zubach and Mook uh, okay. Morris senior. Yep. I couldn't I couldn't remember who that I didn't remember Gordon was the the third there. Yeah, they brought they brought Morris Senior in uh in the start for that game. Okay. Yeah, I I don't know. I don't know what T Lou can throw at him. I think now obviously this is completely changing how things have gone. I think if this is a you're down 3-0 going into game four, I might be like the Clippers might pull this off, even without Kawhi. I don't know. 3-1 in Phoenix. That seems really tough. Uh, there's this there's this I think I mentioned it last time. There's this weird internal fight that kicks in in the I don't want to get swept. I think we saw it last night in Minnesota as a prime example. <laughs> I wouldn't be shocked if Minnesota comes out and gets beat by 30. Like I think they gave everything in the tank to take a game to overtime, hold off a 43-point night for Jokic and win. I think that took everything, but now they didn't get swept in the first round. That's great. 
I think the Clippers might do something similar if they hadn't already dropped a game. It just doesn't seem like there's much to fight for. I know professional athletes aren't programmed that way. Like none of them are saying that, but I feel like at their core, they're like, what, what are we supposed to do? You know what I mean? So I think, I think Suns in five, I think you might've predicted that actually to begin with. It just Correct. wasn't with a Kawhi injury caveat. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it happens, you still get all the credit. I won't tell anyone about what happened. So uh, we'll see what happens, man. I'm, I'm trying not to get too excited but I feel like there's part of the fan experience that we lost with the Kawhi injury. Absolutely. And there's also the backstory of the Nuggets not having their full arsenal when they played against them in the playoffs a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. I think the Nuggets Suns series, if that is what's to come, will be, from a non-Suns fan perspective, a phenomenal series. Like I think casual NBA fans, big NBA fans who don't have a team, love the fact that the nuns and uh, sons and nuggets could be uh, running together, which as I just threw those words together and said, nuns, I don't think that will, uh, I don't think anyone's (laughs) cheering for the nuns out there, but like, that's exciting. I will say I don't have great confidence. I think the nuggets were the deserved one seed because as I look at who will come out of warriors, Kings uh, or uh, Lakers and uh, brain fart Grizzlies, Mm -hmm. If I'm picking a team to play, the Nuggets are absolutely my last selection, especially with how this first round has gone. And I know the Warriors usually get my, uh, no matter what happens, I'm scared of you. They're still great. But if I'm drafting who to play in the second round, I'm not picking the Nuggets. So a deserved one seed, frustrating that the Suns got behind the eight ball with injuries to where the four seed was really best case scenario going late. Um, I would love to be on the other side of the bracket. I'll put it that way. but. It'll be some good basketball, man. And and I feel like you, who are much better as an actual journalist here, who can take your heart away from the game, if that is the matchup, I feel like you've got to be pumped about that. Yeah, so for the people that are, like, really close to me, they know that the two teams or the three teams outside of the Suns that I follow closely in terms of if I'm not watching the Suns game, who else might I be watching? In no particular order, it's the Bulls or Miami Heat and the Denver Nuggets. So I've been tapped in with the Nuggets since Jokic stepped foot in the United States. And just kind of seeing this trajectory as it's gone over the course of the last, I don't know how many seasons now, it's been fun to watch. Um, we got this burly, unathletic, unassuming basketball savant that has no weakness on the offensive side of the floor, uh, just dominating the game in a multitude of ways. And it's a contrast to you know the style of play that the Suns have on offense. And, you know, styles make fights in this at this time of the season. And I'm glad that, again, fingers crossed because neither one of these two series are done. I would just like to see both teams come into this series with the, with the deck fully stacked in terms of health. Yep. Michael Porter Jr. being fully healthy. Obviously, Jamal Murray, who, again, another Kentucky guy for you. I've been elated to see him just get better and yep. look more like himself over, over the course of the season. Um, and then we got the backline stories with Monty Williams and – um. And uh, Coach Michael Malone, don't call him Mike. Michael I Malone. I forgot about that. Oh, <laughs> That's my right. goodness. As well as Chris Paul all being together That's in cool. New Orleans. Uh, so it's just so many. There's so many backstories. Um, I mean, even Jared Jack was with those guys in New Orleans. Yeah. And Jared Jack wasn't with them that time around. It was Willie Green that was in that assistant coach spot. 
So to see Jared Jack, who was also on that team, it's just so many different interconnectings with it all, man. You got the Devin Booker and Jamal Murray, uh, Kentucky guys going at it. Like, it's just so much Chris Paul and DeAndre Jordan. Uh, <laughs> it's you, so it's so much, you, dude. <laughs> you just unlocked one of the all-time Twitter NBA memories of the it's Michael. Um, oh my goodness, I forgot about that completely. Don't make that mistake. Do not make that mistake. <laughs> oh, I hope I hope someone does because boy, that's good. Uh, well, like I said, we got we got game five tomorrow night. Uh, I this is a genuine. I have I should have looked into it and I didn't. It seems like the Lakers series and Warriors series has a chance to go longer than the Sun series or Nugget series. Traditionally, and I don't want to put you on the spot if you don't know that's fine. Do they typically get longer rests if both teams have finished in like four or five? Or do they typically start a game one of that series while maybe the other series is wrapping up. I was just trying to think of, will they potentially both get some good rest before going into the next one? I think going off of just the top of my head, I feel like I've seen a couple of series over the last few years where if one series goes long and one that goes into a sweep or a gentleman's sweep, there might be overlapping game one of said series like one and, and game seven, seven of the late ones. Okay. Yeah. So it might be a matter of a day or two in terms of uh, extra rest that you might get. Either way, you close out your series when you can. And you take yep. what you get. I feel like that's the reward for handling your business in a timely manner. And I was kind of happy that the Nuggets did lose yesterday. Obviously, I really don't care what that series ends in. But just the fact that they won't have an advantage if, yep. the, if the Suns can't handle their business. Um, they, they won't necessarily be that day's advantage and rest. Yeah. Um, so just keep yourself in that yeah. position. You did all the hard work. Now finish the job in front of your home crowd. I was going to say, you finish the job. Worst case scenario, the Nuggets are done in five, so you're on even playing field. Mm-hmm. Travel's not that bad. The altitude sucks, but that is that's anywhere. Uh, anyone going against Denver. But yeah, I mean, it. If if teams take care of business the way we think they should, I think we got some really good basketball to look forward to moving forward. Steven, getting close to that hour mark. I know we had two games to cover, plus a little extra. Uh, what's one thing that maybe our listeners should be looking for in game five? So we were talking about the Suns dictating from the start, setting the tone. Not just now sprinting through that first time out, but also sustaining it. Um, just kind of zooming in on some numbers here. Looking at the Suns' uh, offensive ratings from first quarter in uh, each of the first four games, we got a 75 offensive rating in game one, which is not good at all. A 96 in game two, which is also not great. A 96.4 in game three, also not great. A 92 in game four, which, again, is not good. And you want to kind of look at their numbers from the second quarter to the fourth quarter in all of those games. So in game one, it was a 75 in the first. From the second quarter to the fourth quarter, 116.5. Game two, it was a 96 in the first quarter. Second quarter to the fourth quarter, 141.4. Game three, it was a 96.4 in the first quarter. Second quarter to the fourth quarter, 136. Game four, a 92 in the first quarter. Second to the fourth quarter. 123.6. 
<laughs> you see, it's it's night and day. It's night and day. And again, that just speaks to if they can just neutralize the first quarters, like we saw in game four, which you corrected for us, where they were tied at 27. That's good enough because when you do what you do over the course of the rest of the game, that's insurmountable. Most teams can't and match that can. firepower, especially when you start dipping into your bench. And Most you teams have, can't match. And you actually have a good defense. Like we, There are some teams out there who have the offense to do that, and it comes at the cost of their defense. That's just not the case. Mm-hmm. That's Man, that's... I and in three of those four games, I only mentioned the offense side, but on defense rating in three of those four games, uh, the defense got significantly better right. in that second to fourth quarter stretch outside of game three. So, yeah, that's that's it, man. <laughs> that's it. That's we'll, it. We'll put it this way. If you're looking for something, let's see if the Suns can win the first quarter. That's it. Suns can win the first quarter. You got to feel pretty good moving forward. Uh, well, thank you all for listening. I want to Quick, Steven, if you don't mind plugging, where's the YouTube channel where people can watch the film breakdowns? Because I am benefiting from them, and I assume other people will too. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, first and foremost, if you follow me on Twitter, you can follow my uh, – you can just go to my link tree that's on my um, – in my Twitter bio. But my my uh, YouTube channel is uh, Steven, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-P-R-I-D-G-E-O-N, and then my other last name, Gardner. G-A-R-N-E-R-3. So you can follow me there on YouTube. I always, whenever I do a film session, I also post a YouTube link under the uh, the videos that I posted on Twitter. So you can always see them there. But if you ever want to just go on YouTube and just follow them directly from that page, um, you can do that as well. I post all type of stuff there. Um, again, the WNBA season is fastly approaching, so I have a lot of WNBA stuff coming up as well. Doing film sessions is no different than I do with the Suns. So all types of basketball talk there, man. Awesome. I don't have much to plug for myself other than make sure if you're listening and you haven't followed or subscribed to any of the podcast channels, do so. We uh, we're excited about the new thing with fans first, but that means we started from scratch. So we are building this thing from the ground up once again. Uh, Excited to do it, having a good time doing it. Uh, Thank you again for listening. For Steven, I am Ethan. This is Into the Valley, Phoenix on the podcast. We out. Peace.